Well, thank you all for being here. I'm aware that this is a bank holiday weekend, and it's miserable outside. So <laughs> you shouldn't be here, really. I was actually brought two of my friends, so I knew that at least I would have two people as an audience, but I'm <laughs> pleasantly surprised that uh, there are more. Now, in addition to that, I also need to warn you that I'm, I have a bit of a sore throat, but I will only use this in my defense if you make really tricky questions, <laughs> okay? Otherwise, I'll be okay. So, um, I'm not sure what kind of background you guys have. I'm a political scientist, and I've done research on nationalism and political violence, and particularly on the vast conflict in Spain. Uh, so as such, I've never really worked on traditional justice, but I've, many of the issues that I've worked on that, uh, sort of have brought me to study victims and terrorists and to problematize these two concepts. And I think as a, as a result of this and the work I'm doing this year at St. Anthony is that I think what I'm going to say today fits in some of your sort of um, interests and concerns. Now, to start with, um, what I want to argue is that some of the questions or issues that have uh, arisen in some other sort of conflict situations such as those of Northern Ireland, uh, South Africa or Colombia for example are relevant to the case study I, um, I look at. In particular there are these two questions, can there be reconciliation and healing between individuals and groups who do not express guilt and regret and can there be a future of societies not willing to acknowledge its past? Um, the fact that we're making these questions already assumes uh, or, I mean, these sort of questions lead to a, a sort of answer. Um, and I want to explore these in a little bit more detail um, by sort of trying to argue or answer these three questions. Should societies remember or forget? Um, do they have a choice? Who are the victims, perpetrators, and are there hierarchies of pain and responsibility? The first one, should societies remember or forget? But I'm not really sure. But I know cognitive psychologists tell us that individuals should forget. We all forget in order, in order to learn. We forget in order to be creative. We forget even in order to be happy. Um, and there's this um, funny little tale of Jorge Luis Borges about Funes el Memorioso, Funes de Memorias. This is a man that remembers absolutely everything. He remembers so much that he does not understand how can we can call dogs dogs. Because every little dog has its own peculiarity and the man is uh, incapable of abstract thinking. Now, I'm not sure how I'm going to link this story to the actual topic of the presentation, <laughs> but when I was thinking, I mean, should societies forget? We know that in order to learn, individuals forget. We know that sort of Funes was a very unhappy man. And I wonder whether we can make a connection with societies. Who are the victims and perpetrators? In principle, this should be simple. Criminal laws and sort of national legislations make this clear. They sort of devise a categorization of victims. Um, but very often, particularly in conflict situations, our perception of what is a victim and what is a perpetrator depends on our belonging to an ethnic, religious, political group, so on and so forth. Other hierarchies of pain and responsibility? Well, in principle, what we would, one would say, no, of course not. All victims are the same. But are they really the same? Are all members of a particular community, do they all have the same chances of being victimized? Or does it depend on residents and yet again belonging to a particular group? If we think that victims are different, how do we distinguish them? What sort of, sort of how, do, how do we operationalize this distinction? How do we distinguish between them? And on the basis of what? And if we say that there are different victims, or some that are more victims than others, what is the political consequence of this? Should they 
get a different recognition? Should they get reparations? Should they have? Should they get specific public outputs? Now the issue of sorry, I don't have I don't have questions to I don't have answers to all these questions, but I thought it would be interesting to start with. Now issues of memory and victimhood are particularly relevant to the case of Spain, and many of you, I guess some of you even have looked at this case. Uh, if you are into traditional um, justice. And both memory of victimhood are words that have been prevalent in political discourse and in the public sphere in Spain for 30 years. Right? Now, the issue of justice and transition, again, these are two words that have been used at extent, at a large extent, but they have never been brought together in transitional justice. Okay? The, the transition to democracy was a pacted and elite-driven transition, uh, it was characterized by not sort of breaking or sort of establishing a radical break with the past. Not at all. If you like architectural metaphors, the old Francoist sort of building was not destroyed and then a completely new building, democratic building, was erected. Not at all. The new building was erected with the bricks of the old building. This is a very, very, very famous um, sort of observation of that. Politician at the time, so quite a friend of Miranda. Now, what's interesting is that issues of, of memory and, and, and justice were dormant for almost 30 years until there was this law of historical memory in 2008, which aimed at identifying and recognizing the victims of the civil war, both sides, and victims of human rights abuses during the dictatorship. Okay. Um, this sort of legislation emerged precisely at a time when those people that had participated in the conflict were dying away. And so this is the generation of the, of the grandchildren that are sort of putting forward this legislation. And then, and I think this is of interest to you, Balthasar Garzón um, sort of declared himself competent to investigate sort of the crimes of Francoism in 2008. This was very controversial. Uh, he was in February 2012, he was, um, it was ruled that he was competent and therefore he should be punished. But for a different case, as you know, he has been banned for courts for 11 years. So these are not related cases. So we should, I want to make this point in, in this uh, sort of seminar. But it's certainly true that Garçon has very few friends uh, amongst political leaders in Spain. So you can make a connection if you wish, but we're talking about completely different cases. He was banned from court because he authorized illegal wiretapping uh, to lawyers that were communicating with accused of a sort of monumental uh, sort of uh, tax fraud scandal with political connections as well. Right. All these and any discussion about reconciliation, victims, memory, justice, and so on um, is very relevant in the light of recent developments in the Basque Country. So there was a sort of a permanent ceasefire of ETA in, in October 2011. ETA stands for Basque Homeland and Freedom, and this is a terrorist group, or an armed group, um, born in 1959, which is responsible for 850 deaths or so. Now, bearing in mind that we have these questions and we are looking at sort of the case of Spain and the Basque Country, um, let's briefly look at the definition of victimhood. And I'm sure that you have all done a lot of work on this. I've done it recently, and I'm sort of uh, a bit new to it, and I'm surprised by some of the findings I've found. So we can either go for a discriminating definition where 
like following criminal law, where you, where you clearly distinguish between direct and indirect, or the bereaved, and so on. Or you can go for a more universal definition where, in an ethno-nationalist conflict, for example, everyone in a given society can be considered a victim. And this is what, what Kenneth Bloomfield uh, report argued in 1998, that at a given point, all the citizens of Northern Ireland could be considered victims. <coughs> Now this is great because it sorts out the problem of having to distinguish between victims, but at the same time it creates an additional problem which is to distinguish between those who used violence and those who did not use violence. So for example in the case of both loyalists and paramilitaries, uh, loyalists and republican paramilitaries, they argued that they were victims of violence. So their actions were a response to some sort of previous history of violence or a provocation and therefore in spite of they being sort of perpetrators, they also consider themselves to be victims. Okay? If this is true, then maybe we should start sort of thinking about a wide-ranging taxonomy of victims and perpetrators, where these are not mutually exclusive categories. You sometimes have victims, and then between victims you have different scales. Victims, I don't know how to conceptualize that, but you may have that. Then you have perpetrators, and then you have people who are both victims and perpetrators at the same time. Now, who are the terrorists, or who are the victims in the vast conflict, right? I mean, from what I've said before, it's going to be easy, it's going to be difficult to, to sort of conceptualize this clearly, right? And, um, and before moving into, into this sort of, uh, sort of case study, for example, remember our, our understanding of, of Gaddafi in the 1980s, for example. Gaddafi, for most people, was a terrorist, right? He did harbor terrorists, he did sponsor terrorist camps, he funded, he encouraged sort of incursions, assassinations in other countries and so on. But sort of Libyan foreign policy was structured around the idea that the international system was profoundly unjust, that third world countries were sort of losers in sort of this process of modernization, and there was a sort of a great villain in all this, which was the US. And third world countries or, or sort of non-aligned countries had a responsibility to fight this greater evil. Therefore he didn't see himself at all as a terrorist. Right? Now, obviously, this has to do with our understanding of terrorism. Traditionally, we use the word terrorism to refer to political violence used by non-state actors, clandestine groups, armed groups, insurgent groups, and so on and so forth. However, if you are interested in violence at all, you will know that by far the political agent that has sort of committed more mass atrocities, genocides, and mass killings is no doubt the state. Okay? And still, we hardly ever use the word terrorism to describe state violence. Those in the field of critical terrorism studies these days are sort of pushing for using terrorism more often to describe the sort of behavior and, uh, and the actions of um, states. To complicate things further, in a conflict situation, it's often difficult to distinguish between victims and perpetrators. Theory of action, repression action was the theory or the tactic used by ETA um, to sort of uh, develop sort of what started as an armed group into a wider insurgency. So the idea here was that a given action, a violent action against a representative of the state would trigger a, sort of a response, a repressive response, which would affect large sections of the population. Since we're talking about a repressive state, an authoritarian state, there would be politicization, radicalization, and sort of new ways of recruit for the armed group. These would in turn sort of uh, legitimize and increase the strength of the group, 
leading again to another wave of repression, action repression, so on and so forth. This escalates into a point where there will be some sort of civil conflict or open war between two different, if not group, let's say, between a state and, and a sort of non-state actor which had sort of effective control of a portion of the territory. Now, I was unable to tell you what is terrorism, I was unable to tell you what is a victim, I was unable to tell you so many things. Let's see if I'm a little bit more likely with what is the mass conflict. I think I know a little bit about this, I have a sense of what this is. I also have a sense of what the other categories refer to, but I think it's interesting to not jump to conclusions. And maybe we know what the conflict is, maybe it's easier to distinguish between perpetrators and victims. Okay? So quite simply, the mass conflict is an ethno-nationalist two-level problem. On the one hand, you have a security dimension or a military dimension where you have two agents that use political violence to damage each other. They try to raise the cost of participating in the conflict in the international choice theory. And then you have a political dimension um, where you have societal and political cleavages or some sections of society that cannot agree on what should be the long-term future of the Basque nation within Spain. So what you get, what you get is, a, is a pluralization of views along the nationalist line. If, if this wasn't a two-level conflict, it would be relatively easy to solve, or at least possible to solve. Because if we were only talking about the military dimension or security dimensions, it would be a criminal affair. Right? And it would be down to police and security services. If it was only a political conflict, it would be down, in theory, to elected officials, politicians, to sort out and agree on what should be sort of the right sort of um, political structures, you know, semi-federal state, federal state, secession, partition, and so on. Okay. Now, since we, we are always, since I'm always sort of putting these competing definitions, uh, problematizing concepts, why don't we see the conflict and the issue of victims and, and terrorists in sort of dialectic relationships and competing patterns? And this is what I want to do in, in the time I have left. So please, if I, if I go on my time, just let me know. So I want to first tell you a little bit about experiences of violence, then I have a few more slides on competing narratives, and finally six more slides, 666, on competing legitimacies. Um, I have some pictures, so just get over. <laughs> Don't fall asleep, not yet. So what, what, is, what is violence? So violence is the, as you can see, I like, I like my definitions and I like to go step by step. I know it's not necessary, but I think unless we speak, or we use the same words, we will never sort of understand each other. So violence is the intentional use of physical force or power, threatened or actual. What's interesting about this definition, and Foucault, by the way, would disagree with this. Because for Foucault, power and, and force are different things. They often go hand in hand, but they are different things. So in this definition, physical force and power is, uh, is the same. But what's interesting about the definition is that threatened or actual. So you don't have to be a direct victim of violence to be considered a victim. And of course, people who study traditional justice, I know that this is an obvious point. Um, so violence is both a fact and a perception. And this is how, for example, we can come to use uh, sort of Johann Galtung's sort of a, a concept of structural violence, where there's no actual physical violence, it's just social structures that sort of make... Sorry. Um, social institutions that do not allow human beings to fulfill their basic needs. And what is legitimate violence? Again, this is all leading to the idea, I mean, all this sort of playing around with the definitions leads to the idea of how difficult it is to clearly distinguish between terrorists and victims. That's what I'm trying to get. So, so legitimate violence 
Well, if you're a social scientist, you think, well, this is easy, right? Maslow said it very clearly. The state has the monopoly on legitimate violence. So any other actor that uses violence is non-legitimate violence. Okay? So quite simple. Now, we also know that legitimate and legal, or sort of legal and just, are different things. So we can also think of examples where, where sort of the state uses violence and it's not legitimate or it's not just. So how can, can violence be used as a response to a perceived injustice or, or an illegitimate regime? Right, okay, let's get to some details. An easy example of victims, right? People killed by, by ETA since 1968 to 2001, okay? And I just want to, I want you to sort of explain this in, uh, give you some pointers. So from 68 to 75, this is the dictatorship, so very low levels of violence which is a bit counterintuitive, right? Because in authoritarian structures, people do not, cannot channel their grievances, and they respond by sort of finding a, a way of expressing their grievances, but that's actually not the, not the case. Transition years, so opening up of political opportunity structures, what you see is an exponential growth in the number of attacks. Then I would say there's a decline from 1981 and to, to 1999, which is, there are some peaks, but it's a relatively sort of steady decline, and then from 2000 is when you really have the complete decline of radical vast nationalism. What's interesting about these years is that they tell us two things about the movement as such. First one is that this is consistent with uh, sort of terrorism research, that terrorist groups move at ease in democratic societies. They take advantage of freedom of movements, of expression, of association, of a sort of uh, of meetings and so on and so forth. And the second one, what it tells us, and you cannot see this from the data obviously, but I mean, trust me on this one, what this tells us is that, is that the group EPA was never anti-fascist or anti-dictatorship, it was profoundly anti-Spanish in the sense of, of secession, wanting secession, not democratization. And a very large percentage of the victims in, in these five years were high-ranking sort of officials in the military. So the idea was to provoke a coup d'etat and sort of reverse the situation where the theory of action, repression action, worked much better. Okay? Now, experiences of violence. What about state-sponsored violence? Can we find examples of that? Well, we do. There are sort of uh, numerous cases of uh, sort of states of exception. Uh, these are sort of suspension of basic liberty during the, uh, during the dictatorship. Also, summary executions. But the ones that are really interested are the state-sponsored violence during democracy. Okay? These are fascinating. You have a few groups that essentially, sort of coinciding with the killing of high-ranking military officials, uh, sort of, they use secret funds of the Ministry of Interior and Secret Services to find ETA in its own terms. So what they do is they use mercenaries, they use sort of policemen, they use uh, secret services to effectively kill the enemy. Right. So it is a, it's a, a sort of a, a, a mirror response. The ones that are more interested are this GAL, the Repression to Terrorist Deliberation. These are also funded with secret funds, and they, kill, they, they end up killing 27 people with unclear connections to ETA. And they kill most of these in southern France. As you know, the Basque country is located up in the north, next to the Pyrenees, and sort of border with, um, with France. And why does this take place? Because at the time, it is pre-Schengen. Right? I mean, so we're talking about effective border controls in a hot pursuit. Uh, sort of, uh, a car could not go into the neighboring territory as they do now, pursuing sort of criminals and so forth. 
So what happened during the 1980s was that ETA operatives would leave in southern France, they would cross the border, they would plant a bomb, and they would return home in the evening to southern France. Um, or maybe not as sort of comfortably, but that was effectively uh, sort of the perception that military officials had, and they grew sort of very frustrated by the fact that France did not care about this, and that France would not cooperate in intelligence gathering and exchange and police cooperation. So what they did was to bring the conflict to French soil. And, and that's how these people got killed. Now, there are, this is very controversial, of course, and there are two sort of possible sort of conclusions. Was it a successful strategy or was it an unsuccessful strategy? Well, I've heard this from sort of Spanish officials saying that this was actually a very successful strategy because it obtained the strategic objectives it had, which was to change the view of France with regards to what the conflict was. So this was not an internal security conflict of Spain, it was actually a conflict that could sort of spill over France as well. Okay? And it's interesting how the end of the activities of the Gal almost coincides with the start of sort of a very close collaboration between France and Spain. So some Spanish officials are very happy about it. Of course, there is a sort of a more nuanced sort of um, evaluation of all this, which is to say that actually this confirmed the view widely shared by radical Basque nationalists, that Spain was an authoritarian state, that it was a dirty state, that it would use any means to sort of eliminate political opposition, and not only that, but I mean it did damage sort of the reputation of, of a democracy that was still um, sort of being built, not, not consolidated, it was, it was fully consolidated at the time, but um, it did sort of help reinforce this view of, of, uh, of authoritarianism. Okay? Now, cases of torture, um, this is yet again another controversial issue. Spanish authorities during the 1980s and even the 1990s said that there was no systematic torture, that there were only a few bad apples, and that those cases were being dealt uh, with separately. Radical nationalists argued that there was systematic torture and that pretty much everyone that went through police custody would suffer some sort of ill treatment. And if you prefer to hear the view of Amnesty International, during the 1980s, the sort of the yearbooks or the annual report on countries uh, sort of say that there are this systematic torture up until the 1980s. From the 1990s onwards, they say that one cannot speak of systematic torture, but there are far too many cases of ill treatment in police custody, and that the, the Spanish government is not sort of paying enough attention to this issue. Other experiences of violence, the issue of the dispersion of political prisoners in both Spain and France. This starts in, in Spain, this is dated from 2011. This is a policy by which all ETA inmates are scattered around prisons within Spain in order to break internal cohesion. Right? Now this is a very controversial policy which was only used with ETA inmates. It wasn't even used with jihadists in the 1990s or 2000s. So what they did, just for, for practical reasons, they put all the jihadists together in a few prisons, sort of, sort of fostering a process of radicalization. So something, sort of a very effective policy which they used for, one could argue, the wrong kind of terrorism was not later used for the right kind of terrorism, because we know that prisons are sort of very important in radicalization for jihadists in Europe, at least. Yet again, a very controversial policy because sort of ETA inmates 
could argue once again that they were being treated as political prisoners because no other inmates in Spain were dispersed in that manner. So what we get is that in the end we have different experiences of violence. Not all the experiences of violence are the same. In, and in fact, victimhood is radically different depending on what side you are in. And some of the sort of victims organizations would argue that the only victims that really exist are themselves because they are the innocent bystanders, the innocent civilians, others that have used violence, and remember the case of the paramilitaries in Northern Ireland, are not victims in the same manner. Okay? So we have different experiences of violence. If you have different experiences of violence, you're likely to have competing narratives. Right? I'm sure you, you, you find this in all the case studies you guys study. Could we then sort of conceptualize this conflict as one of conflicting nationalisms, different national projects. There's a very popular, very famous opinion poll made by the University of the Basque Country, which is very polemic because it distinguishes between nationalists and non-nationalists, making this perfect, perfect duality. Right? Now, the only problem here is that Basque nationalists, or nationalists, the blue ones, um, are exactly these, Basque nationalists, whereas Spanish nationalists are nowhere to be seen. So those who want to maintain the status quo are not present in this equation. Both Spanish nationalists and non-nationalists are sort of in the red, sort of, uh, the red group. Okay? So this is a false conceptualization of the project, or the, or the conflict. Any group involved in a conflict comes up with a story of why do they hate us? And why do they make us do what we do? Right? And I'm sure this is common in other cases as well. In, in the Basque case, in radical Basque nationalism, um, so the national discourse has justified this war effort, you know, we're not talking about terrorism, we're talking about war effort, it's a long-term war, by making reference to a history of injustices, uh, sort of also acts of heroism uh, and redemption, and acts of commemoration, which one could argue are even more important than the acts themselves. Okay? So here, we, here you have the, the picture, so you can enjoy this for a while. I could, I could come up with very long, with very detailed sort of reconstruction of the narrative, but I think this gives you a flavor of what I'm trying to say. So the first poster, for example, makes reference to sort of key dates where, in Basque history, where either territory was lost, wars, uh, sort, of, um, sort of defeat in wars, um, or fragmentation of what's allegedly the Basque territory. And it's interesting that this goes back to 1512, right? Where obviously. You know, one can even doubt that Spain existed as such beyond an aggregative monarchy. Um, the, second, the second poster makes reference to a continuum where no matter who has been in power, there has been policies of extermination or oppression on Basque, from sort of Franco and Hitler meeting in 1940 in Andalusia, southern France, to Mitterrand and Gonzalez sort of agreeing on policies in the 1980s. So there is a continuation. There is a sort of a historical continuum where there has always been oppression um, by foreign powers, particularly France and Spain. And finally you have the, the last poster, but what is exemplified is the, the, the idea or the perception of being an occupied territory, uh, being a colony. The history of uh, heroic and redemptive acts. Here an interesting sort of continuity is drawn between the soldiers, Basque soldiers that fought for the Second Republic against the, sort of the Francois forces in the 1930s, the Budaris, um, and ETA members in the 1970s and 1980s, which are seen as 
sort of modern form of Godaria or Godaria, right? So there's a continuity here again. So there's a, the idea that Basques have been doing this for centuries. It's the same story repeating again and again. And once again, the idea that fallen soldiers, not terrorists, um, also have to be honored. So those who are in prison, this is very similar to Northern Ireland, um, they also need to be remembered and, uh, and sort of put forward as sort of heroic examples. And then again, the acts of sort of heroism and injustice, these are even more important than the acts themselves. Unless they are remembered, they are not politically significant. So as it happens with nations and states at war, na uh, stateless nations are also have to devise mechanisms for commemoration so they can politicize new generations. Okay, so we have what we have at the, sort of at the top. So this was a, a sort of famous pediatrician killed by the sort of the, um, the state uh, death squads. Uh, famous ETA inmate which went on hunger strike because of a court ruling. And again, you can make the sort of the connection with Bobby Sands. And this is a celebration of the day of the Basque soldier, okay, which is in sort of September 27. Okay, so these are sort of public ceremonies of remembrance. So essentially, what, what this tells us is there is a particular radical, uh, a particular radical discourse, because of the experience, particular experience of violence, which makes possible the reproduction of the conflict and the reproduction of a particular side of the conflict. Uh, one could argue also that this idea of the injustice uh, um, and what needs to be done in order to regain that glorious past is a nationalist trio. And this is very common in sort of nationalist discourse. I don't know how many of you study nationalism, but very often nationalist movements make reference to a glorious past they had sometime in, I don't know, centuries ago or decades ago. This is very common. It's very hard to find examples of optimistic nationalism, if you really think about it. So there is this golden age, this golden past, there, there is a process, the period of decline, coming to an age of I don't know, bronze or iron, and then there is a particular political project that needs to be implemented in order to return to that glorious past. And this is very common. Uh, this sort of nationalist history is very common in many nationalist discourses. Okay. Competing legitimacies. So, so far, we've seen different experiences of violence, different narratives. Um, but what can we say about how authoritative are these, these two sort of groups, these two sort of competing actors in this conflict. Well, one could argue that they are, they have great legitimacy, and an example of this would be that they are both able to raise funds to wage their violent campaign. Obviously for the state, they have the, sort of the Ministry of Finance, they have the budget, but even if for radical Basque nationalists, they also have what they call the revolutionary tax which is a form of extortion by which they sort of extract resources from the sort of the wider network of sympathizers and not really sympathizers because it is extortion after all. Right? But this tells you there is there has to be some form of support in order for this to take place. It's not only down to sort of threat, threatening with violence, there is something else. Now, in recent years, in spite of this narrative we have been able to identify um, sort of the, with a history of injustices, um, with this perception of violence, the use of torture, the use of prisoners, uh, the dispersion of prisoners, 
the use of sort of state-funded paramilitary and so on. What's obvious is in the last 10, 20 years, the state has gained legitimacy. Um, and in that sense, if this was a game, there can be no doubt that the state has won the legitimacy game. And, this, and it, uh, the state has done this not only because it's um, a more powerful actor and it can reproduce itself, but because apart from democratizing its practices gradually, it has also been very skillful in combining carrot and stick policies. And this, I think, is the key to explain the last 15 years and the decline of radical Basque nationalism. So I'll, I'll mention a few of these elements, and I hope that you will, that you will um, understand what I mean. Now, in terms of deploying security measures, nobody doubts that Spain is sort of fully legitimate in deploying repression or using sort of its security apparatus in repressing sort of internal dissent or sort of the use of um, sort of um, political violence by a non-state actor. Not only that, but in later years, and, and you saw that with the decline in the number of killings, there has been a very effective policy of counterterrorism, but even more important, counter-recruitment. It's not enough to just arrest members of a particular group, what you have to make sure is that their ranks are not replenished. Okay. So you do these by, by, by a combination of raising the cost of participating in the armed group, of course, so that affects a certain number of people. But what's even more important is that you affect this by somehow providing a narrative where it's no longer useful or even necessary to join this uh, insurgency. Okay. But if we stick to the cost, the cost of participating in the armed struggle, what you see, particularly the collaboration with France and Spain, is that the number of arrests per year um, has been enormous since 1996. And, and here the possibility of not escaping to France has been determined, has been key. And one cannot sort of um, overemphasize this point. I mean, the collaboration with France has been key, if not the key issue, in, in sort of uh, eroding their strength. Now, political reasons why the state or the government has gained legitimacy, I think this is crucial. And very few people agree with me on this point. Okay? So um, I'm happy to take criticisms of this. But very often we look at peace processes and we look at successful peace processes. And you know what? I think that in this particular case, what's important about this process was that it failed. And, and, the, and the way in which it failed is what makes it so important for the medium and long-term continuation of the conflict. There was a peace process in 2004-06 where Prime Minister Zapatero, I don't know if you remember him, um, but um, in which uh, sort of the Prime Minister asked for parliamentary backing to initiate a peace process. Now, this had never been done before. This was done publicly, openly, and against the opposition of the sort of the, the main opposing party, the Conservatives of the Popular Party. So in spite of taking the political gamble, in, in spite of this being very, very costly, or potentially very costly, the government decided to openly start peace negotiations with ETA. Negotiations took place in both, um, I think, Zurich and, and Oslo. Now, ETA was not happy with the progress and with the speed uh, of the negotiations, and halfway through the negotiations, they planted a bomb in sort of Madrid International Airport in December 2006. And this was a surprise to all parties, this was a surprise to the government, this was a surprise to even supporters to radical Basque nationalists, because they thought they had wasted a golden opportunity, an opportunity that may not present itself. If you look at the years when peace sort of talks took place, there seems to be some sort of 
10-year rule before 89, this is so late 70s, some negotiations as well with the faction of ETA. So there's something there about the 10-year rule. And having wasted this opportunity in 2004-06, many perceived that they, that they could no longer disband with honor. So this was very, very, very problematic for, for radical nationalism. And I think that this played to the advantage of the government, because they had tried, they had tried openly, and from this moment onwards they say, well, we cannot trust these guys anymore, so we will not even try to negotiate or to sort of implement political measures. From now on, it's going to be repression and only repression. And I think there is something here about sort of, I'm not, I'm not sure how, how much of a widespread acceptance this is, but within Basque society, that the government took a political gamble and therefore there was little else it could do. Okay. I'm not sure how widely shared this was, but I think there is a, that many people sort of understood that an opportunity like this would not present itself in the near future. Now, Another very controversial policy, and again, here we're talking about sort of state, not, not current, um, was the banning of political parties. Banning of political parties that were somehow connected to ETA. From 2000 onwards, the, ma the main statewide parties agreed that they're going to ban any political party that has a connection, or alleged connection, to ETA. The way they phrase is that unless they condemn violence, and they say, that they impose ETA, they risk being banned. Okay? If a member of a particular list of a banned party moves onto the next list of the successor, the party is banned altogether. Okay? So this means that new generations of politicians have to be created every time a political party is banned. Again, the cost of participating in politics uh, is, is enormous. Okay? Now, this is a bit like the gap, okay? Is this a successful policy or is this an unsuccessful policy? And once again, it depends. There were many, and I'm, I'm one of them, which at the time, when, the, when this legislation was approved, we all said, oh, this is such a bad idea. This is such a bad idea because once again, this confirms the perception that this is not a democratic state, it's an authoritarian state which doesn't allow expressions of secession, even though they are peaceful. And this is probably still the case. Right? That why do you want to ban sort of any political program? But in spite of the morals, it has been an incredibly effective policy. Because through political parties, um, ETA managed to get time on television, it had subventions, or sort of transfer of funds from the state, because for every seat you get, you sort of get transferred cash, you have the right to organize demonstrations, you have the right to organize rallies, if you don't have an organization that can do this, your presence in the street, your presence in the media, is reduced considerably. So in spite of the morals, this was very effective in weakening um, sort of, sort of the, the network of individuals, but also the propagation of the message. Okay. And then, in spite of us thinking that this was a very bad idea, and democratic and so on, then the Human Court of Human Rights came in 2009 to tell us all that this was perfectly fine. And obviously the Spanish government was extremely happy about it. Right? I'm very happy to talk about this later on if you want. Um, but in spite of our sort of perception on whether sort of democracy should do this or not, the truth is that this is what has probably damaged the most sort of this world of radical nationalism. And then finally, at the social level, the legitimacy uh, of, um, of supporters, of potential supporters of mass society as such, 
has also declined because hardly anyone today sees violence as useful. On the contrary, is the most counterproductive tactic one can use, and it's what actually makes sort of the possibility of secession a reality. And, and also, victims of terrorism have taken uh, sort of central stage in the last few years. The, the discourse of victims, uh, who sort of now even have hijacked the political agenda of the government, say that no negotiation is possible, that the two sides cannot ignore their wishes, and that there is only one way out of all this, which is to use the rule of law and sort of make everyone sort of uh, comply with, with the legislation. So if this means that there can be no early uh, sort of release from prison, so be it. So Association of Victims of Terrorism, in spite of not being representative and representing a very small community, they are incredibly influential these days. Right. So just to summarize what I've said today, and then I'll, I'll give you some food for thought. So the idea of discretionary versus universal um, sort of definition, no, sorry, not, not, uh, not, not discretionary, um, Discriminating, exactly. Discriminating sort of definition or universal definition of victims, the idea that maybe a wider taxonomy is useful, the idea that there are different experiences of violence, that the state, particularly in this case, has used terrorist techniques for many years, that has even used maybe even undemocratic tactics, the fact that ETA members and sympathizers have a feeling of uh, sort of an experience of violence that have to do with how their inmates, how their relatives have been treated, have been scattered, the issue of torture, and so on. Then the issue of competing narratives, but we have two sides, two different nationalist ideologies that compete each other for legitimacy. And then for the case of, um, of the state, how it has gained legitimacy in later years, by this combination of carrot and stick. And I think the failed peace process is absolutely essential in this, and the legitimacy and the sort of the little uh, reaction to the banning of political parties would be another one. One last graph, and I'll stop. This is the electoral evolution of radical, or sort of radical parties, Basque nationalist parties, that have some connection, or are allegedly have some connection to ETA. What you get here, more or less, is that electoral support has ranged between 120,000 votes and 240,000 up to 1999. Once we start having the criminalization of political parties, we have no data for some elections. But after the disbandment, after we have a sort of a preliminary truce, and then we have the, the sort of the permanent truce of, uh, sort of October 2011, what we get is an increase in the number of, of sort of support for these parties. Now, you can either interpret this in, in one of two ways. You can either say, well, the secessionist agenda is gaining strength, and this is likely to continue in the future, or quite simply, you're saying the electorate, as usual, is much smarter than we, what we usually think, and they are sending clear signals to the political party in saying, you have to pursue this route and not even think about supporting sort of violent methods again, because if you continue the way you're doing, we'll give you the votes and we'll get you elected. Uh, we'll have elections probably later this year, uh, regional elections in the Basque country. And so for the last elections, sort of the Bildu, which is the sort of closest party to ETA, but no longer ETA, but let's just say secessionist party, um, was second in sort of sh uh, share of vote. This is likely to be the case in, in the regional elections as well. So it's 
I mean, I'm not sure yet how to interpret this, but I would say that it's a, it's a reward for sort of pursuing this um, 